Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here at Tanner. And today we want to do a talk that we've been wanting to do for a while now. And our goal with this episode is to go through the steps of any open heart procedure, whether it's going to be a cabbage, a valve repair, anything that would require the patient to go on cardiac bypass. And we're going to go through the different phases and the different phases that we've broken it down into is going to be the setup, the induction and line placements, the initial incision and sternotomy, any type of vessel harvesting that there would be if you're doing a cabbage, the pre-cardiac bypass pump the cardiac pulmonary bypass itself, and then the post pump and then the closing and transferring. And we want to go through each of those steps that we've broken down the procedure into and talk about what are the things that we want to be paying attention to? What are some things that we need to be prepared for? What are the steps going to be just so that when you're in this type of case that you can know step-by-step what's going to happen? Because what we've really found is once you've done one or two of these, you really have seen the same process over and over and over minus any type of rare event that would occur uh, that hopefully would not occur during your case. But for the most part, if you're going to have a normal open heart procedure, these are the following steps that you should most likely see. So we're going to split this into two talks. The first talk, we're going to go through the initial setup, line placements, incision, sternotomy, vessel harvesting, all the way up until we get to pump. And then the second episode, we're going to talk about what is going to happen when you're on the cardiac pulmonary bypass pump, and then coming off of that pump and closing and transferring, et cetera. So I'm really excited about this. Hopefully you guys find this helpful just for when you do your cardiac procedures and have any type of board questions regarding open heart procedures. First thing that we want to talk about is your setup for these cases. And the main thing that you want to think about are all the different types of lines, fluids, everything that you're going to have hooked up to the patient, how that's going to orient to the patient. So you're not having a bunch of things that are crossed over and just a lot of mess. You want to make sure that when you need to act quickly, as you do many times throughout this case, you have exact places where you have everything set up. So you know where your push line is, you know where your vasoactive drips are, you know exactly where your art line is. If you need to draw anything off of, you know exactly where your central line is as far as if you have an open port, if you need to add something. So your setup in any case is important, but for this, I think it's just so, 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 so important that you have a really clear picture of what you want to do and that you set it up very, very purposefully so that during the case, you're not spending any wasted time trying to locate lines or locate ports, anything like that. So the first thing you want to think about is your art line setup. This is something that you'll typically do before you go off to sleep. That's kind of different depending on where you practice. I know different places that we even go to, to do hearts practice this differently, but for the most part, you'll see an art line before you go to sleep. And so you'll have that kind of set up over on a cart. You can have things opened up and just ready so that you can go over there, prep the skin quickly, place the art line, and you're not wasting a lot of time getting all of that straightened up. Uh, something that I think is really helpful when you're setting up that kit is just to have your tape already with tabs on it. It's just one less thing that you need to spend time trying to get set up. So just have your tape already with tabs so that you can, you know, tape the hand down or secure the actual art line to the arm, whatever you want to do with the tape. But I found that when you're in a rush and you have a lot of things to get going on, the last thing you want to do is get tripped up on trying to get the dumb tape off the roll. So maybe that's just something that you can uh, think about when you're setting this up. The next thing that you'll want to have is your central line kit and make sure that you have communicated with your preceptor and also 
the surgical team as far as what type of kit they will be needing. And what I mean by that is, will you need a swan? Will you need just a straight up uh, triple lumen? Or is there anything special that they'll need with that central line? You'll want an ultrasound probe cover that you can set on top of your central line kit. Make sure you grab your gown and gloves, the specific ones that you need. And then also you'll want to make sure with your central line, while you're thinking about that, you have your transducer cables hooked up to your monitor, and then you can have uh, those ready to connect to the actual central line. So you'll have your art line, obviously I'll go to your A line, but then you'll have your CVP and then possibly your PA line that will go there to the central line. So you can have all those connected zeroed and ready to go before the patient ever gets in there. And that's just one less thing you have to worry about. Yeah. And I guess we should preference here before we continue on too much further. This is obviously going to be specific to each organization that you're going to be working at. And so what we're going to be going through here is specific to the cardiac rotation that we had and the steps that we did for that. So keep everything that we say with a grain of salt for the fact of there might be some little details that would be different from hospital to hospital, which is why when we get into the drugs and things like that, uh, we're not going to go specifically into all the dosages because the hospital that we were at had us draw things in a certain concentration, whereas your facility may be different. So uh, just, just keep that in mind as we're going through this episode. So on top of all your lines, you're going to want to make sure that you have all your fluids set up. The patient should come back with at least one peripheral IV. Where we were at, they would come back with one. We'd go ahead and induce with that one IV and then put in a second one after the patient was asleep. But so you're going to have that primary tubing that's going to be running to that IV. It's either going to come back with them from pre-op, or you're going to have that already ready to go to hook up when the patient comes in the room. You're also going to have a blood tubing set up on a fluid warmer. This will be attached to your central line once you place that. You're going to have another line. What we typically did was have a microdrip tubing that we would do small pushes through. That way we could keep a close eye on the amount of fluid that we're giving because you don't want to give too much fluid to these patients just with the idea that you're going to be giving them a lot of extra fluid when they go into the bypass. And so we would push a lot of our medications through a microdrip tubing just to conserve a lot of that fluid that we'd be giving. Additionally, how I like to have things set up is I have a driving fluid of about 50 mils an hour set up on a pump already ready to go. And at the end of that, I have a manifold that has a bunch of ports attached to it all close to the hub. That way I can attach all my other pressors and any type of medications I'd be running in drip form right close to where I'd be going to the patient. And so I have that ready to get set up and that'll attach to my central line once we go ahead and place that. In addition to fluids, obviously you're gonna have your basic airway equipment set up. And in terms of drugs, this is where it gets a lot more in depth compared to any other procedure that you'd be doing. So drug wise, how I like to divide it up is my uppers and my lowers, meaning what are gonna what medications are gonna increase my blood pressure, what medications are gonna decrease my blood pressure. So depending on what facility you're at will depend on the protocol in terms of what pressors they go on first, surgeon preference, et cetera. I know some of the surgeons that we worked with really like dopamine. And so they would have us go on dopamine prior to any other medications. Other surgeons would like norepinephrine, so Levo to be our first number one drip. Some like you to just use phenylephrine at the beginning, et cetera. So keep that in mind as we go through this, but you can either have a norepinephrine drip. So we would draw up a, a drip of that and then make a syringe as well. Typically, I would draw up an uh, epinephrine drip and then a syringe of that, but I wouldn't hang that until I thought that I might need that. I have a phenylephrine syringe, a dopamine drip if it's with a surgeon that would probably request a dopamine drip. And again, this is 
quote for the renal protection. Uh, if you go back and t- listen to our renal episode, we kind of talked about how this doesn't necessarily completely um, protect, but uh, we still kind of give it for that reason. Uh, you can also use a dobutamine drip and then vasopressin as well. Vasopressin is something that I typically don't ever mix up along with dobutamine. I don't ever get that ready, but I just have it available if I would need it. Things that decrease your blood pressure. So I always have Clevaprex in the room. This is very, very quick on, quick off. And so it's very nice to have when we talk through the different steps here where you're going to want to lower your blood pressure very quickly. So Clevaprex is something I always have in the room. And you can also have nitroglycerin and nitroprusside as well. You're going to have your induction medications. So Versed, typically you're going to be using more than what you would on an average case. So I like to draw up 10 milligrams of Versed to start. You're going to have propofol or atomidate or ketamine, depending on what type of cardiac history the patient has. And if you're going to want to be gentle with the induction dose to try to maintain their cardiovascular status, you can either use a low dose propofol with a phenylephrine bump. When you go ahead and do induction, just to kind of keep that stable, uh, or you can go ahead and use a tomidator ketamine just to try to protect uh, the blood pressure from taking too much during induction. If they have any kidney or liver failure, sometimes we'll use cystatricurium. Otherwise, for the most part, I use rocuronium, your lidocaine, And then you can either use fentanyl or sufenta. For the most part, I tend to use sufenta just because we're going to be giving so much opioids during these cases that it's just better to use a sufenta than to give them lots and lots of fentanyl. Miscellaneous medications you're going to want to set up at the beginning. In our specific facility that we did our cardiac rotation, they used an amicar bolus and then a drip. We had heparin, which we'll talk about further on in in the episode, protamine, an insulin drip, and then a Presidex drip for when we're going to be transferring them to the ICU. This is going to be different wherever you go. For me personally, when I had my meds organized, I put them over on my anesthesia machine, the ones that I was actually going to be giving. You know, I might keep my Clevaprex or something kind of back uh, if I didn't have that drawn up or something. But the ones that I knew I was going to be using, especially at the beginning to try to keep the blood pressure up, usually at the beginning, you're fighting hypotension. I'd have the norepi, epi, and neosyringes all paired together. So I know those were right together. Those were what I would reach for if I was trying to increase my blood pressure. And then I would have, you know, my induction meds set out just like I normally would with my Versed propofol, rock and lidocaine. And then uh, usually I'd use Sufenta as well. But I think just the more you can stay organized in this case, because again, initially it's just going to seem kind of overwhelming or just like, there's a lot of things you need to keep track of, but the more you can simplify it and make it feel like any other case, as far as, you know, your induction meds, you know, your blood pressure meds, just keep those together. I think that uh, really pays dividends for when you're in a stressful situation, you know, exactly where everything is. I usually didn't pull up the Cleverprex until we were coming off pump or towards the end of the case. And it was just something that I had available, like Cole said, always in the room, uh, but it was something I would wait to pull up. Same thing with the protamine. That was something that I would have in the room, but I would even set that like away from my uh, anesthesia machine or, or even my uh, clean cart that I would keep my supplies on. I would set that like on a different platform just so that I wouldn't accidentally grab protamine during the case or uh, accidentally grab for that. So that was just something that uh, just helped me keep things straight and organized in my mind. So let's talk about what the actual beginning of the case looks like. The patient will come into the room. You're going to get them hooked up to monitors just like you typically would. You'll include your cerebral oximetry and BISP monitoring typically. You'll give them Versed. Like Cole mentioned, they usually have one IV when they come back to you. At this point uh, where we were practicing, you usually place the art line before the induction. And so you'd have a little bit of lidocaine 
and you would just use a small needle, place a little bit of lidocaine there underneath the skin, do a little skin wheel. And then after they've had the Versed, they've had a little bit of lidocaine there locally, then you could place the art line. Usually that's really quick. It's kind of nice while they are um, awake. Maybe they're maybe a tad bit hypertensive because they're nervous. So usually that can go pretty swiftly and then you can move on to the next thing. So usually you place that, you'll get it connected, you'll get your waveform, and then the other staff in their room will help get that all uh, secured in place. And you can go around to the top of the bed and start your induction. So you can start giving uh, your medications, usually working a little bit more versed. And then like Cole said, Typically what we've seen is, uh, you know, you could use Atomidate or Ketamine, but usually what I've seen is just using lower dose propofol and then using a little bit of Neo with it. And so maybe if they're, you know, an 80 kilo patient, you could work in like 120, see how that does for them. Maybe give them another hundred of Neo, uh, maybe work in another 30 or 40 of propofol if they need it. But what's nice about having that art line already is you can watch their blood pressure the entire time. So if they're starting to get a little soft, you can give them a little bit of Neo or, uh, you know, if you start to, if you think that the propofol is not adequate enough to, uh, keep them asleep, you can, again, kind of judge that based on their hemodynamics, uh, as far as if you'll need more Neo to supplement the additional propofol that you'll be giving them. You don't want to have any real hiccups with your ET placement. Obviously that's true for any case that you're doing, but uh, especially here, you don't want to have really increased uh, sympathetic response or, or any trouble here, especially when you have a lot of things to be doing. So I think this is one thing that you just really, really err on the side of safety. So if you're thinking, you know, there might be a difficult intubation, you might actually just start with the GlideScope right away because this will just uh, help things go a lot, a lot smoother, a lot quicker. Uh, once you're intubated, you'll go ahead and tape the tube. Usually somebody that's standing next to you might be able to do that for you, depending on how comfortable you are. If that's your preceptor, obviously that's uh, totally cool, but you can go start prepping for your central line. Uh, you'll want to make sure that you verify that and you have their neck turned and everything is adjusted just as you would like it to be. So once you go and gown up for your central line, you don't have to make any further changes. Uh, usually the kit for the central line is going to be open right there on your anesthesia machine. This is a very uh, small working space. And so usually what I'll do is I'll take two pieces of tape and just tape the backside of the central line kit up to the anesthesia machine. So it's not flopping down and causing any uh, trouble or you know, just getting in my way. I think that just makes it simple. You tape it up one time and you don't have to worry about it, but this is a very small space. So you need to get pretty comfortable with not having a lot of space to work with and just being very methodical and how you're moving and so that you're not accidentally contaminating yourself or your sterile kit. And just so that you know, everything has a purpose. Everything has a place inside the kit, know exactly where things are so that you're just very comfortable. At the beginning, you're going to be slow. You're going to be so slow as you're going through each thing, drawing up meds, drawing up your, you know, connecting your needle, whatever. But I think, you know, err on the side of going slow and methodically because you just don't have a lot of space. So as Tanner said, when you first start your cardiac rotation, there's no need to be a hero. Uh, it's just important to take your time with each of these steps, allow somebody to walk you through it. But if you can try to be familiar in simulation with the steps of the central line placement prior to coming in there, just so that you're familiar with everything in the kit. So when you do first get that kit open, as Tanner said, you get it taped up to your anesthesia machine. Uh, I've already at this point prep the skin uh, before I go ahead and get in my gown and my gloves and I'm ready to start prepping my kit, if you will, while the skin dries. 
Before I get in my gown and my gloves, though, I like to do one last overview, look at the monitor, see how their blood pressure is, see how their heart rate is, are they oxygenating fine, do I need to mess with anything on my ventilator based on my end title, et cetera. And then I want to know who's in charge of giving meds for blood pressure, why I'm gowned and gloved. Because when you're sterile, if you look up and the blood pressure is 77 over 30, and you're going to need to give some medication to treat that, you're sterile. You can't grab that medication and treat it. So I always like to verify who is going to be on blood pressure duty when I am gowned up. Once that is all good and I know what roles are going to be assigned, I go ahead and then get in my gown, get in my gloves, and start prepping my kit. So in the kit, you're going to get your transducer and uh, your different lumens, and you're going to want to make sure that those are all clamped before you go ahead and start your procedure uh, I had made that mistake on my first time. And when you get in, you're going to have blood coming back. And it's just, it's just way easier if you have everything clamped before you start. I make sure I have my probe cover already in my kit. And so this is something before I get in my gown and gloves, the way the R kits come, this is not in that. So we have to dump a probe cover kit in there along with a tegaderm. So I always make sure that everything I would need accessory wise outside my kit is already dumped into that once I open it before I go ahead and get in my gown and gloves. You're also going to want to make sure that your wire is going to be able to thread easily. So I always pop off the cap to my wire and just go ahead and thread it about an inch forward to make sure it flows freely and then pull it back so that it's just at the very edge of the, the, the tip of this wire holder so I can thread it through very easily. And there's a couple different needles that are going to be in your kit. Personally, the one that I like to use is the one that has a catheter that slides over the needle. And that way, when I get into the lumen of my vessel I'm trying to get into, I can go ahead and just thread my catheter. And I don't have to worry about holding my needle in the exact position while I go to get my wire to thread through, but it's going to be user preference. Once I have all that set up, I go ahead and get my ultrasound probe cover, have a, another assistant give me the ultrasound, just slide your probe cover over just like you would any other procedure. And go ahead and take a look, scan, see where you're going to be looking at, what other landmarks around that area, where's the best place to go. Once you've found your right spot, go ahead and take your needle and you're going to be aspirating as you advance in through the skin. And you're going to be aspirating the whole time as you advance forward until you start getting blood back in your syringe. At that point, if you're going to be using the catheter that threads over the needle form that I like to use, I would just thread my catheter through go ahead and I pull my needle out and I make sure that blood starts to drip out. If you have blood shooting out, like it'd be arterial, then obviously don't continue past this point. So at this point, once blood does start to trickle back, I put my thumb over the edge of the catheter just to conceal any blood that would be coming back, but try not to be putting pressure down on the neck because you don't want to cause a vagal response on this patient. At this point, I hook up a little plastic tubing to the patient and I lower it way down. Yeah, Tanner can tell you all about causing a vagal response yeah. to a patient. I did that while I was trying to advance my uh, catheter in. I was just, I was pushing uh, way too hard. And my preceptor was like, uh, do you hear something? I was like, uh, yeah, my, my heart rate went away. And he was like, yeah, stop doing that. And I looked over and the heart rate was like, 25 and i was basically doing like a karate massage on the patient so be aware but yeah cole had to include that because that was a <laughs> i've done it yep i feel like we should do an episode at the end of our program of all the things not to do that we did almost like a oh man type episode you could start a whole nother podcast just well, devoted, to, just devoted <laughs> to that <laughs> oh man yeah, I non-sterily touched my first swan, had to regown up and glove. We'll, we'll get into that in a little bit too, probably. Yeah. But anyway, at this point, 
you are going to attach a uh, plastic tubing that comes in your kit to the end of your catheter and hold that plastic tubing down and let gravity pull that blood back about halfway through this tubing and then lift it up. And you want to see that blood just drip back down through the tubing. If you see it pulsating, then that's a sign that you're in the arterial vessel rather than the venous side. But if everything looks good there, you're good to move forward. You can go ahead and disconnect that plastic tubing and go ahead and thread your wire through. And once your wire's in, you're going to verify with ultrasound and get some pictures to make sure that you are in the lumen that you want to be in. So I always get a short axis and a long axis view and go ahead and freeze and print those pictures. Once that's in, you can pull your catheter out and leave your guide wire in the patient. At this point, I like to preload my introducer on the end of the wire before I make my skin neck. That way it's just very easy for me to go ahead and thread my introducer through rather than the patient bleeding. When you go ahead and advance that knife, it's a lot bigger cut than you first anticipate on your first time. And so it really is almost a full blade that comes um, in this kit. And you're gonna be going down right on top of the wire. You don't wanna have any gap of skin between the wire and your knife and create what's called a skin tag. So really try to stay right on top of that wire, go down almost the full depth of this blade, pull back, and then you're going to be able to push your introducer through. And as Tanner said here, this is where he made his mistake of pressing down too hard, but you do have to pull some back traction with your hand on the skin as you push forward with this introducer. And you're going to feel several pops as you go through, and you might have a little bit of resistance. It's not going to just free flow pretty easily. So I failed to mention earlier that you're going to have a dilator that you're going to place through this introducer that's going to dilate. And that's the thing that really has a lot of resistance pushing through the skin. Once you get through that second or third pop, you're going to hold onto that dilator and the end of the wire sticking out the backside of this introducer, and you're going to slide the introducer over it. And it should flow pretty easily until that gets all the way to the skin. At this point, you can pull that dilator and wire out. And I like to then aspirate my different lumens, make sure I'm getting blood flow back, flush them through before I go ahead and suture and suturing. Let me tell you, it seems like it should be easy. My first time, it was not whatsoever. I remember the night before I did my first cardiac case, my wife was a surge tech and I wanted her to show me how to suture. And I very first time I took my needle holder and grabbed my needle with it. When I clipped it, I just jabbed the needle right through my finger, like instantly. So it's, it's something that you obviously don't want to do that on a real patient. And so be very, very mindful of the fact that you're going to be having a needle and you're going to be working in little fine quarters here. But when you go ahead to suture, you want to make sure you're not going too deep with the suture because you don't want to hit an EJ or anything like that, uh, that is around the area when you are suturing. And just one quick note on suturing that I was taught is that you can, if you're looking from the head of the bed down, uh, and you're going to suture, try to suture going vertically, like from the clavicle up to the ear, basically like that direction, not laterally side to side. And this just helps keep it better in place as you do both sides like that. Obviously when I say clavicle to the ear, I'm not saying that's the, the range of your suture, but trying to get direction here. But the, um, if you can go vertically like that, it just holds it in place better. Keep in mind, these are going to be in for a while in the ICU and things like that. So the more things you can do to make sure that that suture stays appropriately in place, the better. So that's just maybe one thing that you can think about as you are suturing those in place. The next thing that you want to think about, and again, this is not in all cases, but if they want a swan, this is where you'll be placing your swan. And uh, like Cole mentioned, that it's very important that you know in the packaging, half of it is going to be sterile. Half of it is going to be unsterile. Make sure you communicate with your preceptor if you're not sure, if you've not used one of these before. But 
uh, you'll connect a lot of these things beforehand. So obviously that's not the sterile part. Um, and so while you're gowned up, you want to make sure that you're only touching the parts that are sterile. You're placing it through the introducer. And then it's important that you also have an understanding of the measurement marks that are on the uh, actual swan catheter. You'll also want to be watching your monitor so that you can pay attention, first of all, to your heartbeat. Second of all, you're going to see different waveforms. So as you go into the right atrium, you're going to see more of a CVP waveform. As you go down into the right ventricle, then you're going to start to see actual what looks more like an arterial waveform. You're going to have a systolic and a diastolic. Uh, then you're going to ad keep advancing. And with this, you're just advancing on every heartbeat. You, you want to have good control of the catheter. And your goal is to try to just drive it forward with, with each heartbeat. And you have to be pretty assertive with this. It's kind of tricky because you're not, you, obviously you can't guide it down where it's going through the valves and things like that. And so sometimes it could coil and it wouldn't go all the way in. But uh, the idea there is that on each heartbeat, as the blood's pushing forward, you push the catheter with it. Hopefully you'll kind of ride that wave and go into the next chamber. And then the next uh, waveform that you'll see is going to be there in your pulmonary artery. This is where you're trying to actually get your uh, waveform. This is where you're going to see your typically quarter over dime uh, values. So hopefully 25 over 10 ish is kind of what you're looking for. And then you can wedge it there at that point too. And that's where you're going to have more of a CVP waveform looking uh, when you're wedged. Perfect. So hopefully you're still with us. The setup, honestly, is the biggest part for anesthesia in my mind. It just takes the longest. It really takes about an hour or so to get all of this set up from the time the patient's in the room to you doing your art line, inducing, putting in your central line. Go ahead and do a swan. If you're doing a swan, they might be doing a TE. There's just a lot that happens up front before the procedure even starts. And so at this point, when I get done, I go ahead and dress the central line. The swan may be already through. I have those numbers on the screen now. I go ahead and get rid of all my sharps and I just do a sweep and just look at, okay, my vital signs, where am I at? How much blood pressure medication did the person I assigned have to give while I was doing this procedure? How are we doing? Where are we at, et cetera? You want to get a baseline set of labs here off the art line. Typically includes a baseline ACT, complete blood count, CMP, et cetera. I, I typically give this to the perfusionist. Perfusionist is really good about at our facility running all the labs for us. And so I just let them know, hey, I'm getting a sample. And they're really good at giving us all those values before we even get started. And like I mentioned, if it is a procedure that's going to have a transesophageal echo, so a TE, they're going to look at the, the baseline function of this heart prior to starting the procedure. And this will all happen prior to incision and sternotomy. So that leads us into the next phase that we want to go into, and that is the beginning of the actual incision and the sternotomy that's going to incur. And so once I finish my central line, before they make this incision, I want to get my antibiotic in it at this point, as well as my amicar. And again, amicar inhibits plasminogen activators. So it inhibits the plasminogen from converting to plasmin. And there are some other medications you can use. This is just typically the one that we've used in our practice. And at our facility, we give an amicar bolus up front, five grams prior to the surgeon making incision. And then once the procedure starts here, typically my goal is to manage the blood pressure and heart rate based upon the patient's heart condition, aka if they have any type of valve issues, so aortic stenosis, you might want to keep their heart rate on the lower side, but try to maintain their BP, only knowing that you're going to be leading up to the next 
a couple of phases here where we're going to be getting ready to go on pump. And at that point, you're going to want to make your blood pressure down into the upper 80s or 90s. And so just keep that in mind that you're going to want to keep them under control and stable at this point, but you don't necessarily have to have them down low enough where they are ready to go on to pump at this point. Once the surgeon is ready for the sternotomy, you're going to see them get a saw ready. And hopefully most surgeons are going to be pretty good at telling you to stop ventilating at this point, but some of them may not pass that information along to you. So the second you see them get that saw out, you should be ready to go ahead and drop your lungs. And so you're going to flip over to bag and take off your bag from the machine and quote, hold your ventilations because you don't want the surgeon to saw through the sternum and into a lung. That would obviously be no bueno at the beginning of a case. So at this point, once the sternotomy is done, if you're going to be doing a cabbage, you're typically going to see an assistant down doing some harvesting of vessels. But if you're not doing a cabbage, you're going to continue on by just getting the heart ready to go. So Tanner, do you just want to talk about for a cabbage here, what vessel harvesting is going to look like? Yeah. So usually somebody will be harvesting uh, the vein. Usually this is the greater saphenous vein that is used from the leg while the surgeon is up doing the sternotomy, isolating uh, the internal mammary artery. And so while they're doing this, there'll be a couple of things that you need to do. But the first thing that they'll do is they'll ask you to give a little bit of heparin so that they are able to harvest the vessel. Uh, you won't need to do an ACT at this point, but that's just something that you'll need to keep in mind that this is where you'll be giving a little bit of heparin. Uh, and this is where I actually made a big mistake on my very first day that I was in cardiac and something I will never, ever, ever forget. But when you begin your case, you'll pull up your total amount of heparin that you'll use for the patient. You'll pull up 400 units per kilogram. And again, that might vary based on where you practice, but that's what we would do. 400 units per kilogram. You pull that into a syringe. What they're going to ask for here is just a limited dose for what they need to harvest that vessel. And so you'll save the rest of the heparin to give just before you're going on to pump. And that'll be another conversation you have. This brings me up another point that I just want to mention very quickly is that everything that you do here in this procedure, anything that you're told to do, just verify it back with the surgeon or whoever is talking to you. You want to communicate very, very clearly. And this is something that I've taken with me from my cardiac rotation and I still use on my other cases, even today when somebody, it was, I was doing a vascular case still, but they were asking for heparin. I always articulate back to them exactly what they said to me. So if they say, we'd like 3000 units of heparin, you repeat back 3000 units of heparin. And this is just one way to close the loop and make sure that there's no errors. My misunderstanding, and you might think this would never happen to you, but I, I swear it was just it was my first time doing this case. And I misheard what they said. They said they wanted 3000 units of heparin. We'd drawn up 30,000 units of heparin. That was the total dose. And so they said, go ahead and give the heparin and I was thinking, well, I think we're, I thought we were going to give this heparin much closer to actually going on pump. Um, but I didn't verify. I thought, okay, you want me to give the heparin? I gave the heparin. And then I said, okay, all 30,000 is in. And they were like, what? Like we asked for just the 3000 heparin that we wanted in, you know, it was miscommunication ended up being fine. We ended up giving actually more heparin before we went on to pump and the patient did totally fine. There was no adverse consequences, but uh, it was just like a gut check for me first day doing my cardiac to realize how quickly you can make a mistake. And it's again, just very, very important that you communicate back to whoever is communicating to you. So you close the loop. So the last thing here, before we go, before we start prepping for the bypass pump, the surgeon typically will give 
if they're doing the mammary artery, they're typically going to give some type of vasodilator to prevent any spasm in this graft um, around this point in the procedure. At our facility, we gave papaverin, and this dropped the patient's blood pressure pretty significantly, actually, probably 20 points or so from what I've seen. Really transiently, it was for about one to three minutes that I saw this. But the first one or two times, I instantly reached for my presser to give a, a bolus push, and my CRNA had to stop me because they said, oh, the doctor just gave a pavarin. He let us know this is just going to quick drop the pressure. It's just very transient. It'll come back up. And sure enough, that was the case. So as you're getting ready at this point to go on the pump, you're going to be starting to think in your head, I need to start getting this blood pressure down to the 90s systolically. And so you're already kind of working it down at this point. And then it drops another 20 points really quickly. And your gut instinct is to quick give that push of a presser. But I would just urge you just to hold off for about a minute or two and just, just see what happens if the doctor did just give this vasodilator. So with that being said, as you're approaching the pump phase, and this is the last phase we'll talk about here in our first episode, is the pre-cardiac bypass pump phase. And this is going to be after those vessels are harvested, if you're already doing a cabbage. And at this point, if you're just doing a valve, it will be right after sternotomy and you'll start moving into this point. But the surgeon is going to expose the heart by suturing the epicardium back to the sides of the thoracic cavity. And you're going to be able to look over the drapes and just see this heart contracted and moving. And it is very interesting to do that. Um, so I really encourage you throughout your procedures, just watch what they're doing. At least at our facility, the drips are only about half of the height of what they typically are in a case. So I was able to watch pretty much the whole thing with, with little effort. And it was very interesting to watch each step because it's one thing for us to sit behind the drapes and titrate our blood pressure back and forth. But it's another thing to really be in tune with what step the surgeon is on in the procedure and why your blood pressure is changing. So perfect example there was from the papaverin. If you just are sitting behind the drapes and you see the blood pressure drop and you instantly try to give a, a push up, a presser, you don't know the reason why it dropped. And that's because of the medication that the doctor just gave. So I really encourage you to be in tune of what the doctors are doing and what point in the procedure is causing our vital signs to change. And so as you're seeing this happen and you're seeing the heart get exposed, you need to start working the systolic blood pressure down into the nineties, regardless of the heart condition they have um, in order to get um, ready to go on the pump. And so the surgeon is going to request at this point, the rest of the heparin to be given. So this is going to be, as Tanner said, if your total dose was 30,000 and you calculate this by doing 400 units per kilogram. So let's say your total dose was 30,000 and you already gave 3000 when they were harvesting the vessels. And then at this point, you're going to give the remainder of the 27,000 to equal a total of 30,000. And so at this point, I say a total of 30,000 heparin going in 27 is going in now. At this point, start your timer. You're going to want to get an ACT three minutes after the heparin dose. And the goal is to have this ACT above 400 prior to cannulation. If it's not above 400, you're going to give a second dose of heparin and the surgeon will tell you how much they want to give. And I actually had this happen on my third cardiac case where we give the second dose and the ACT did not come back above 400 still. And so we ended up giving AT3. And I really encourage you, if you don't remember what that is, to go listen to our clotting cascade episode that we did and heparin augments the effects of AT3. But if the patient doesn't have functional AT3 in their body, then you can keep giving all the heparin you want. It's not going to do the effect that we want to see by increasing this ACT unless they have this functional AT3. So I actually had to give AT3 in this case as well and get that 
uh, ACT above 400 with using that AT3. So at this point, the surgeon is going to be ready to cannulate, and they're going to first cannulate the ascending aorta. And so this is where you want your systolic blood pressure for sure under 100 in the 90s, um, if, if not even upper 80s. And this is just really to decrease the risk of having dissection occur. Um, again, part of it's just going to be when they cannulate, you don't want blood splashing up in their face. But really the biggest thing here is you don't want a dissection to occur after the aorta is cannulated and they're going to be starting the venous system. Really, you don't have to keep the blood pressure that low anymore for the other cannulations. It's really just because of that dissection. And so my goal is right after that aorta is cannulated, I start to slowly get my blood pressure up to about hundred, even maybe at max 110 systolic. And this is because I'm anticipating what they're going to do is called a wrap. And so a wrap is where when they get that venous cannulation done, the surgeon asks the perfusionist to do a wrap. And this is where they're going to pull the blood out and cycle it through the whole pump. And so you're going to be losing all that blood from the patient's systemic circulation, and they're going to have a drop in blood pressure just because they're losing that volume. And so when I creep that blood pressure up to 110, I'm anticipating them to drop another 20 or 30 points when they do this wrap. And so it, it kind of helps level it out where I'm not having to give much of pressures right after they wrap. So most often the circuit for this pump is going to be primed with fluid rather than blood. And so this is going to dilute pretty much everything in the blood. So your hematocrit will go down, your medication levels will go down, they'll all be diluted. So I typically recheck a train of four at this point and uh, often find myself having to give more relaxant just because you dilute it through so much more volume that you do end up having to, to give more of your medications. That goes through everything up into the pump that we're going to talk about today. Stick around for our next episode where we go through the part where you're on cardiac bypass. And we'll also talk about coming off pump. It's a pretty tenuous situation as you're coming off pump and taking back over control. And then also how you're going to manage transfer to the ICU and things that you need to think about. So again, hopefully this is helpful for you. Stick around for episode part two.